Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This episode of Clear and Vivid with Julie Andrews and her daughter Emma Walton Hamilton is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. You may have heard me mention the dangers of watching cooking videos on my laptop while I'm in the kitchen. Like that time I drooled on my keyboard watching Alton Brown make French toast. (laughs) Well, Alan, I think we found the solution to your cooking woes. Yeah, Food Network Kitchen is a new kind of cooking app that lets us access live and on-demand cooking classes taught by our favorite Food Network stars, cooking authors, and culinary experts, and all from the comfort of our own kitchen. Search from thousands of trusted recipes and save your favorites all in one place. And when you're ready to cook, you can use the app easily from your mobile or your smart device. So no more drooled-on keyboards, Chef Allen. Yeah, it's like an extra set of hands in the kitchen. And who can't use an extra set of hands in the kitchen? Find Food Network Kitchen in the App Store. Download and start your three-month free trial today. Terms and conditions apply. For more details, please visit foodnetwork.com dot com slash kitchen. From mystery and thrillers to comedy and drama, Acorn TV is your streaming destination for critically acclaimed series from Britain, Australia, Ireland, and beyond. Visit acorn.tv or download the Acorn TV app on your favorite device and use the code VIVID for an extended 30-day free trial. Acorn TV. World-class TV from Britain and beyond. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. What I try to cover in the book, Alan, is that fame is not just the glamour and the red carpets and the gorgeous gowns, although, you know, they're there, but it is such hard work that that doing those big musicals, you have to get up and you have to rehearse every day and you have to get it right and you're picked at and touched up and, and you're on camera and corrected and the choreographer corrects you and it's long days, as you know, and I wanted to show the work. That's why it's called Homework. That's the unmistakable voice of Julie Andrews, talking about her new book, Homework, written with her daughter, Emma Walton Hamilton. I sat down with Julie and Emma for a conversation about both the extraordinary career their book describes and what it was like to collaborate on it as mother and daughter. 
Julie and Emma, I'm so glad that you could be here with me today. This is great. And your, your new book, Homework, begins with a very interesting poem that, that you wrote, Julie, that I think sets the tone. Would you, would, would you mind reading that for me? No, I wouldn't. I'd be delighted. Here we go. I know that I am all that I am, and all that I am is full and ripe. All that I am is standing still, waiting and watching and bursting with life, holding the straining seams of my skin, my passion and wit and my sanity in, waiting for someone to soothe and to say, I understand, you're home. Home. That's really the theme of your, both of your books, the new one and the one you wrote before, which you called Home, and now it's homework. It seems to me your life has been work combined with home and home combined with work. And, and, and trying it, to make a home wherever I was or am. So what is home to you? I mean, the, 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 the poem you wrote sounds like home is more a sense of understanding than a place. Uh, well, a feeling of, of um, warmth and safety and, uh, and people around you understanding and not being, not being out there in the wilderness, perhaps. Um, you know, I did a lot of touring on my own when I was, oh, 15 years old in um, England. I toured endlessly around England. You were traveling alone? Yes. In wow. those days, I, I believe it or not, I was, well, sort of alone. In other words, my parents couldn't join me at times. Sometimes they did because we performed together at times. But when I was out on my own, they mostly would ask somebody else on the weekly bill, let's say the local, you know, the comedian that was topping the bill, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> would they would they just keep an eye on me? Um, and they asked the comedian to do this? Well, and his lady, <laughs> yes. And there were some very unpleasant and unpleasant things that went on. But uh, really, uh, it was an odd mixture. And eventually, for a while, I did have um, a... a tutor uh, traveling with me because I couldn't go to school, and I didn't have any schooling, really. You were sort of trapped by your talents, in a way. Well, and, and necessity. I mean, my, my parents didn't have any money, really, although they worked in vaudeville and they tried very hard, but there were... You know, uh, my mom had three boys. I was the eldest. And so... I really had to work for us all to survive. And you began working at what age? My real huge debut was when I was 12. I had, they discovered when I was about seven um, that I had a freak singing voice. It was like four octaves range and and incredibly thin and white and squeaky, but I could do calisthenics of uh, cadenzas and and all kinds of things and hit high notes that only dogs would respond to, you know, <laughs> in the neighborhood. So you never had to have a pet? Uh, no, I did, and we had to shut him out of the practice room. <laughs> but truthfully, um, uh, that was at the age 12, uh, I was sort of asked to be in a London review totally something that I shouldn't have been in, but it was like I was this great gimmick. I ran up out of the audience to accept a gift or a balloon, as a lot of other children did, 
Um, and I, I was sort of the last one on stage, and they questioned me, and what do you do? I sing. Yeah, you know, would you like to sing for us? Oh, yes. <laughs> what so would this you... was all put, a put-up job. A put-up job, but I yeah. was the last one up on stage, and, and then I sang a very difficult aria, the Polonaise from Mignon, bastardized and cut so that all the good stuff was left in and the boring stuff was left out. (laughs) And it stopped the show on opening night. The whole audience just stood up and rose up and wouldn't stop applauding. And I then ran off through the audience as if I was still a member of the audience. (laughs) And that was the beginning of a career that then began, I began touring and doing other radio broadcasts and endlessly touring around England in silly reviews and not knowing what I was doing and trying to be reliable and grown up and press my own costumes on Monday night and putting my band books down in front of the uh, uh, maestro every Monday. You, you were, you were, you had to deliver like an adult while you were still a kid. Yes, and and sort of take care of the family as well. Yeah. You know, keep an eye on them, and that's why I was always, because of so much traveling, to get back to the word home. It it apparently my parents told me oddly that it was the first word I ever said. Home. Home. I was oh. yeah. We were driving a, uh, in 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 our old Austin Seven or whatever it was. I was sitting on my mother's lap, and as we pulled into our tiny little patch of concrete, which they called a driveway, uh, I said the word, questioning home. And my mother couldn't believe that I'd said it at at a very young age. So they drove all the way around the block again. And as I came in, I again said home. And it's because whenever she got, uh, she arrived home in the car with me, she uh, would say, for my sake, here we are, home, you know. And so I picked up on it. You know, we talk a lot on this show about relating and communicating. Mm. And it's so interesting to me that the word home appears so much in, in the book. In the book, in right. both books. And here you have written a great deal children's books, this, this autobiography, homework. I think it's about being rooted somehow. And you've written it in collaboration with your daughter, Emma. Mm. Emma, what's the collaboration been like? I mean, how hard is it to collaborate on a piece of writing about someone where you have to tell her story, help her tell her story from her point of view? Well, as you can imagine, it was first and foremost a tremendous privilege and honor um, to be able to take that journey with her. And my job was to tell her story from her point of view and not interfere with my point of view. Yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering about those little sessions in between. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mom. Yes. Well, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. There was a lot yeah. of mom. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was it, you know, we've written over 30 books together in as collaborators in children's publishing. Right. Children's books together. And, and of they've course, been very successful. Well, thank you. Um, so we have a short of, a, a, we have a sort of shorthand um, when how, we're how writing. How did that develop? How, what, what's the nature of the shorthand? And how did, how did it develop? We discovered very quickly, Alan, that we have 
different strengths, complementary strengths, and that um, mom has all the really fresh original ideas and the Less great lo- one-liners and the interesting approach to an opening or the musicality or the visual sense. And and I'm all about the structure and the nuts and bolts and the three acts and the, and the narrative arc and all of that. Do and you work together head to head or does one of you do a draft and the other wreck it or what? No, we, we <laughs> have to be, we have to be head to head, whether we're in the same room or whether we're online together. Or yeah, on um, Skype. For yeah, instance. we yeah. have uh-huh. to, we have to, hear each other and preferably see each other. But it is literally a process of of writing out loud, essentially, and finishing each other's sentences. And quite often, we'll be mid-sentence and we'll both finish the sentence simultaneously. So what about, how has this affected the mother-daughter relationship? Has finding a way to work together changed the way you relate to one another as mother and daughter? I don't think... It's just deepened and warmed and matured our relationship, but there was always that very, very warm connection, even at the most difficult times that I do write about in this particular memoir. And even then, it didn't take long for those clouds to go by and so on. But, you know, what it has done, I think, is that it has allowed us to, uh, because we're usually busy with a project, a creative project, much of our time together is focused on creative Mm. play and creative brainstorming and and creative collaboration. And therefore, there isn't as much time left over for, you know, what, what, uh, what, a good friend of ours, yeah, what a good friend of ours calls organ recitals, you know. (laughs) Right, right. I have to tell you, there's a funny little P.S. to how we work. When we began writing, I was living in California, and Emma was here in in Long Island, and uh, but so because of the time change, she had other she had a regular life to get on with, as did I, when we first began writing, and so we'd plan either of. It was very, very early for me. So I'd get up at sometimes 7.30 or even 6.30 so that it was 9.30 her time and she could begin Mm. writing with me. And I'd roll out of bed and brush my teeth and all of that. And just before I got online with her on Skype, for some stupid reason, there I was really looking like the wreck of the Hesperus, but I'd have to use a little bit of perfume and spritz myself. Perfume, and it's not anything that she could have smelled. No makeup, perfume. mind you. No, no makeup, makeup not having brushed her hair, but perfume, just in case I could smell her through the webcam. But it sort of it gave me a sense of myself. Isn't that stupid? That's so interesting. <laughs> you know, you know, when you were telling me about your childhood, um, and, and touring. Perf- touring and performing. I think you and I had a similar experience at the same, roughly the same age. Oh, my. You, I've read that you went to the stage door canteen mm-hmm. as a child to perform. I did. And my father and I performed at the Hollywood canteen and, for, uh, and for Soldiers do and you Sailors think most, right about the same time. Yeah. Do you think most people know in those I don't know now I, what those yeah, were. I, yeah. Explain what it was. Well, they were they were uh, particularly for the forces, for the troops overseas, for the for the any member of the forces that um, were happened to be 
back in London or home on leave or anything. It was entertainment and a good meal. And what did you find? We, we, were, we would be performing for soldiers and sailors who were on their way to the Pacific. Yes. And um, we, my father and I did Abbott and Costello uh, Abbott and Costello's Who's On First. Oh, that's great. It was my realization that I wanted to perform. Was, I was nervous backstage, shaking with fear before I went on. And as soon as I got into the spotlight, <laughs> I felt warmth from the spotlight. And then when I got that first big laugh, that was it. Uh, Carol Burnett says the same thing. I, 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 you Probably she's told you, I'm sure. Amy, you you had, it seems to me, the problem that some members of my family have had, my my grandchildren, of growing up next to somebody who's really famous, really well-known. And you've had to make a life of your own, and you really have. You, you, you teach at Stony Brook University. Tell me about that. First of all, I will say that Mom made a tremendous effort— um, when I was young, when when my step siblings and half siblings and I were all young, um, to create as quote unquote normal a childhood and environment for home. us as possible, <laughs> given that we were yeah to create a home exactly. Obviously, I was visiting sets and traveling with her and and so forth. But there was always an attempt at a good protein breakfast every morning at around oh, the same oh, time great. and That's things like great. that. You know. Um, and, so I, that was a big help. And, and then tea every afternoon, no matter yes, what. Yeah. yeah. Um, for many years, I think I, I was, um, I, I wrestled with the fact that it took her away from me quite often or, um, you know, I not rest, quite knowing. I, I wrestled with that too. Yes. Yeah. And not uh, quite know, knowing it, how it, to deal it, with it all the questions. Us, it affects us on both sides. I was crossing a parking lot a few years ago with my, my oldest granddaughter at that time, she was only about uh, eight or nine. And on the way across the parking lot, two or three people stopped me to talk about my work, you know, people I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And she she was holding my hand, and she said, when we got by ourselves, she said, I hate it that you're famous. Oh. Oh. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really felt for her because once you're famous, you can't— you can't tone it down. Well, I, I tell this funny story of being um, in a department store right after <laughs> Mary Poppins came out. And um, I think I was about three. And I wasn't with mom. I was with my nanny at the time. And the children's department, they had set up a whole Mary Poppins display because the movie had just come out. And there were all these life-size cardboard cutout figures yeah. of Mary Poppins. And I vividly remember pointing to them and saying, there's mommy, mm. and suddenly being aware that these two women who were shopping in the department turned to each other and said, isn't that sweet? That little girl thinks her mother is Mary Poppins, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that was the first time it kind of registered for me that there was something different about my mom, you know? Yeah. But so there was a point in my life where I very, very, um, where a good friend of mine said, you know, um, it's a gift that you've been given that you are the daughter of this extraordinary figure in people's lives. She is beloved. She is cherished. And you need to wear the mantle with pride. But I'll tell you what, Alan, it made me, when you mentioned Stony Brook, because I, I teach creative writing, I, I teach children's book writing for the creative writing MFA there. And 
I think it has made me work harder to better educate myself because I don't want my whole life. I have spent so much effort and energy trying to prove that I wasn't just riding on mom's coattails. And so, you know, to be so fortunate as to be asked to write a book with her, our first children's book, you know, I, I didn't want it to be, well, she only got that because she's writing with her mother, Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. So I went out and learned, steeped myself in in craft and learned everything I could about writing and, you know, got an education in it myself to the point where I can now teach it because it matters to me that I have, that I stand on my own two feet and, in that And regard. imagine the gift that it is to me because she is the nuts and bolts of everything we write together. And I couldn't now, I don't think, Right without you, darling, I really feel that. Well, we, we depend on each other that way. We mm. really do. It, as you talk, it, it, it reminds me of how most people don't think of fame as anything but something good. And there's plenty of good about it. Uh, it helps you get more work and that, <laughs> that kind of thing. People know who you are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it helps you get a table at a restaurant. You know, there are there are there are good things about it, but you have to get used to it. Did you did I had a real problem when I first became really well known because of MASH. Mm-hmm. I had I had night terrors for six months because people were pulling at me in the street and that's it felt right. really plucking strange. at you and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Really plucking at my arm and that that's kind of, right. Did you I often thought it would have been a good idea for people who are newly famous to have a support group <laughs> of people who have already gone through it and help you help you make the adjustment. What 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 did you go through, Julie, when you first A lot of that. It? it it hit me like it was like um I mean, I'm not knocking it. Uh, here I was given these wonderful roles of Poppins and Sound of Music and and so on. But people began to recognize me. And then, as you say, it becomes an almost like a, a kick in the uh, in the solar plexus or, or, or um, it, it comes at you like a freight train in a way because you're not anticipating anything like that. What I try to cover in the book... Alan, particularly this book, is that fame is not just the glamour and the red carpets and the gorgeous gowns, although, you know, they're there, but it is such hard work that that doing those big musicals, you have to get up and you have to rehearse every day and you have to get it right and you're picked at and touched up and and you're on camera and corrected and the choreographer corrects you and it's long days, as you know, filming is. Yeah. And I it's wanted hard. to it's, show the work. It's hard. Yeah, that's, that's a real contribution. Well, that's why it's called homework, because I I do try to make a home wherever I am, and home was as much the theatre for me as a youngster as it was real home. And wherever I went, I tried to make it feel comfortable and easy, although it wasn't. But it's the same now that, you know, this second book called Homework was all about the same kind of thing, doing my homework, learning the craft of movie making, which I knew nothing about. A big difference when you go from the stage to film. Yeah. And then also the work that I eventually did on myself to embrace it all and to go into psychoanalysis and all of those big things that were, were hard work, too.
After a short break, Julie tells me about a botched operation she had that destroyed her singing career and how it was both a trauma and an opportunity. Who doesn't wish they were a better cook, right? Please, we have a sign in our kitchen that says dinner is ready when the smoke alarm goes off. <laughs> well, Ellen, I, I think we found you some help. Right. Introducing a new kind of cooking app called Food Network Kitchen. This app lets us access live and on-demand cooking classes and lets us take classes with our favorite Food Network stars, cookbook authors, and culinary experts right on a mobile or smart device, and all from the comfort of our own kitchens. We can even save the recipes all in one place in case we forget the ones we liked. There are more than 80,000 trusted recipes, step-by-step videos, classes for every taste and skill level. And there's access to Food Network series. The Food Network Kitchen app really is like an extra set of hands in the kitchen. Find Food Network Kitchen in the App Store. Download and start your three-month free trial today. Terms and conditions apply. For more details, please visit foodnetwork.com kitchen. And if you need yet another reason to try it, your annual subscription provides up to 100 meals for kids living with hunger through a partnership with No Kid Hungry. For more information, go to turnup.org meals. Escape to Britain and beyond without leaving your seat. Hailed as a glorious streaming service and essential must-have by The Hollywood Reporter, Acorn TV is your destination for addictive dramas, cozy mysteries, and classic Britcoms. Featuring TV's biggest stars like Sandra Oh, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Olivia Colman. Binge-watch a classic series like Midsummer Murders or discover a new favorite. Plus, you'll get buzzworthy originals you can't find anywhere else, like Manhunt, Mystery Road, and the Emmy-nominated Queens of Mystery. Acorn TV is available on demand and commercial-free on all of your favorite devices. Visit acorn.tv and use the code VIVID for an extended 30-day free trial. Acorn TV, world-class TV from Britain and beyond. Marriage Story is playing in theaters right now, and it'll be on Netflix starting December 6th. I can't tell you how proud I am to be in this movie. It's such a beautiful story. It moves me. I've seen it several times now, and I'm moved every time I watch it, and I see something new. The amazing thing that Noah Baumbach has done as a writer and as a director is that he's telling a story about two people who love each other even while they're getting a divorce, which is a harrowing experience for both of them. It's, it's really a love story. And I think that's why it's called marriage story, not divorce story, because it really is two people working the most difficult thing in their lives out. I loved working with Noah, and I loved working with all the people in the film. Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver, I really think, are going to be there. We're going to be watching them at award time. They're amazing in this movie. If you want a really, really good emotional workout and a few good laughs, take a look at Marriage Story, coming to Netflix on December 6th. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Julie Andrews and Emma Walton Hamilton. I was interested in the homework book in that it's based so much on diary entries that you made. You, what, what motivated you to keep a diary during all of those years that you 
were working? Um, I used to keep one as a child um, because, of course, I was up to London every day, and I'd. It was more a kind of grading myself. How did I sing tonight? How did I perform? And mm. and you know, a great deal of those diary entries were. And then I ate, and then I slept, <laughs> and then I my brothers teased me, or I te- I had to look after them or something. That must be fascinating to look back on now to yes. see what you as a child thought was worth putting. Down. I know stupid stuff, but then really from about when I made a film called Hawaii when I was in Hawaii, and uh, it was so rich and fascinating to be making that film. And it was so, such hard work. It was either the great storm at sea or the measles epidemic or the fire in the church and <laughs> those kind of things. And and you had to, you had to sit next to a hot fake lava thing right that's that's right the, the church was on fire one, one one and and my character had to rush in to help put the fire out but what i'm saying is that that's when i really thought i have to write some of this down i'm sure i'll forget and as much as anything it was writing down but also sorting out my head mm. uh, so it cleared my head and left room for other things once it was on the page. You had also just started therapy at that point, and I think that, that might, that have, might have been part of the the inclination mm. towards self-reflection mm-hmm. as well. Well, I think it was more, it encouraged me to write it, but it was mostly to get out of my head the things that were teeming, you know, tearing around in my brain on so many levels that it was, if I wrote it, I could... It was there, I knew it, but I could get on with the everyday living in a way. So when you wrote the book, you must have made great use of the diaries. We did. Um, I, mm. As Mom said, they didn't really begin until um, until the making of this film, Hawaii, which was her fourth film. Mm. Um, so there were for no for, diaries. Yeah, it was my fourth. Yeah, yeah right. so there were no diaries for Mary Poppins or The Sound of Music, alas. Um, and so those films, we had to do what we did with the first book, which was really a series of interviews between the two of us. Uh, we would just sit and talk and and record ourselves. And then I would ask questions of mom about her memories relative to particular incidents in her life or projects. And then we would have those recordings transcribed and convert the transcript into a f- rough form of narrative that Isn't we could it work interesting from. interesting how much you remember Yes. Things that come up. I was up. just going to say that. Uh, I, I can't get over how memories have risen while well, trying to write about the past. things stay in your head or little tiny moments of the first uh, impression of something stays in your head forever. But yeah. it's also interesting how memory changes because one of the things we discovered having these diaries is that m- the memories were not always reliable. Mm. So quite often mom well, the would memories say, were, but where they took place. Yeah, certain details about the memories mom would be adamant about. <laughs> and then we would find that in the diary something else entirely was the truth a you know, that she ours, recorded at the time. A friend of ours who was a very famous journalist uh, wrote a book about his life and, and Arlene, my wife, said to him, God, there's so many wonderful details in the book. How did you remember all of this? What do you mean remember? If I couldn't remember it, I made it up. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) No, this book truthfully doesn't have anything made up. In fact, there's so much left out just because space was needed, you know, and I could only write so much. The first draft was 600 pages. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
And we had to cut a, a full 200 yeah, out before, yeah. uh, before we could begin editing. Uh, which I was happy to do, I have to say. You, uh, Julie, do you um, consciously l- l- look to learn new things? You talked about the effort you put into learning, singing and preparing. Yeah, for the I never had an movies. education, Alan, that, that I, I would love to have gone to college, love to have really studied something, but I never could because I was too busy mm. providing uh, for the family. But I have always, I think, been really curious and interested in so much. And uh, my brain just began to open and open. And uh, I guess I grew up in a way. I was so focused for so many years. I was very young for my age and very green, you know, as a little girl especially. I mean, you go on stage, sort of hands clasped and thinking, Oh, I hope they like me and mm-hmm. and trying to be winning. But I suddenly realized I had to get over this. I used the audience as a way of judging myself. What I thought I projected onto them, what I was actually uh, thinking about myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not singing so well tonight and I'm sure they sense it and, and I'm uncomfortable. I'm sure they sense it. But not realizing that they've paid money to come see you. They want to see you. They want to have a good time. It took me a long time, and I did do a lot of hard work on it. I asked a lot of questions, and finally I was able to turn it around and make it seem, and it was really important for me, uh, Alan, was, oh, my God, they're coming to my party, to my house. You know what's wonderful about this? Not only do I feel exactly the same way, but when Yo-Yo Ma was on the show, oh. he said what you just said in precisely those words. They're coming to my party. Exactly. They're coming to my house and I'm opening these doors and saying, you came, how great. And once I grasped that, then I was able to give the joy, I hope, and really try to make, rather than saying, I hope you like me. Of course, by the time I got halfway through my performance as a youngster, I was pretty safe because I knew I was getting applause and people did like me, it mm. seemed. But but now I'm able to go on stage and I really enjoy that first moment. I remember standing off stage hearing the crowd on the other side of the curtain, mm. hearing them not there wasn't, murmuring. There wasn't, it was a, sometimes it was a murmur and sometimes it was a really loud noise. And <laughs> they were in their own world and I thought, I have to go out there and... Take them into mine. Yeah. Mm. And it, it made me nervous at first. And then I realized just what you said. They've come here to have a good time and they've come to, and I'm the one who's helping them have a good time. Yes. I mean, I'm sure that back at home, their young son maybe has the measles or a sore throat and then there's the tax man to cope with. And But maybe <laughs> for three hours, you might be able to take their mind off it and make them feel great. In 1997, while acting in Victor Victoria on Broadway, Julie developed a hoarseness in her throat. She was diagnosed with nodules on her vocal cords and underwent surgery. But it turned out that the diagnosis was mistaken and the operation was unnecessary. I didn't have to have the operation. That's the heartbreaking thing. But I did do it. It's my, it was my choice to do it, which I blame myself for. But I thought for a year 
there was great mourning on my part because my throat was so damaged from the operation. I felt my voice was my total identity, and I had to do a lot of work on that. Oh boy, that, that's a really tough position to be mm. in. It's, it's and like I know other people, of course, that have also lost their voices and felt the same way. It's a scary thing for any performer. Yeah. Every time, for, for years, and I, and I don't sing. I, mean, I, I sing when I have to, if they have a gun to my head. <laughs> for years, I would, uh, when I would get a bad cold, the first thing I'd think is, well, maybe I could become a mime. <laughs> The, the, the mine was, well, I'm going to be a bass, so I might as well try to embrace it. <laughs> because the voice goes all the way down. Yeah, but here you had, from the time you were a child, the singing voice meant so much to your identity. Mm. So that must have been depressing. It was my total identity. And thank God for it. It grew to be so important and was a lifesaver for me. So, So how do you now have a sense of identity. Well, how did you arrive after at about a year I knew that I would have to do something uh, to get my feeling of 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 um, self-respect and god knows what back. And that was just about the time that Emma and I started writing together. Uh, and I've always loved to write and uh, would do so as a young kid and I thought that's what I have to return to. I have to let at least see. I always wanted to write when I was a real youngster. Uh, not that I had any education about it, but that was always my dream to make up stories and silly, silly stories. But uh, it's, it's such a wonderful thing for me to hear that you were able to reestablish yourself well, as yourself. Well, to find yourself, something else to, midlife. To adapt. Yeah. You, because to me, all of life is adaptation. If, if we don't adapt, we're, yeah. we're, we're out of luck. What I think it comes down to is is creative expression, you know, and... That's when, a good point, sweetheart. Yeah, and yeah. so when, when it happened and, and when mom lost her voice, and it, and it was a tragedy, and it's still a tragedy, but sh- she happens to be one of the most resilient people I've ever met in my life. I mean, <laughs> she's overcome a great deal in her life, not just the loss of her voice, but a lot of other challenges as mm-hmm. well, and from childhood on. And I think w- when we talked about it, we realized that writing, for instance, um, was a, just a n- new way of using her voice, so to speak. And if that you think was actually of, your statement to me, and it was as if a weight dropped off my shoulders well, when Emma, Emma said actually, that. she put it in those words yes, at that Yes, Mom, time. you've just found a different way of using your voice. That's really nice that you could offer that insight that's to your, to your mom. That's the relationship we have, though. Yeah, that's so great, and that you could hear it and benefit from I it. I did hear it, and it really resonated. And it is, I mean, if you think of voice as creative expression, you know, it is really true. And there are other areas now that you've ventured into directing and and producing. Which and, is all about know. giving back, as you know, Alan. Yeah, that's right. And, you, and I'm not sure any of that would have happened if you were still singing. If and I was so, still trying to perform, yeah. Right. You, I, you direct. The first thing you directed was it the boyfriend? Yes, at at Bay Street. And you know when you actually did the boyfriend on Broadway, Arlene and I wore out at least one vinyl <laughs> album of listening what to you. What a great! It was, I loved hearing that. Yeah, it was a great break in my life. But 
the other interesting thing that I find, and one's so influenced by all the people one's ever met, when it came time to writing a memoir, I thought, and the first one too, I thought, why why publish? That seems, I don't want to boast. I don't want, you know, I, I, it's my children that I want to learn uh, mm. about granny or mum, whatever it would be. Um, if they're interested, why not just write it for them? And then, and then I remembered Moss Hart's phenomenal biography. It's, it's Act the One. greatest Isn't autobiography it? about the theater ever. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And it taught me when I read it um, about a portion of theater, a piece of theater, a time on Broadway I knew nothing about. Right. And so I thought, oh, uh, he came, I mean, that thought about Moss came to my aid when I was wondering whether to publish or not. And I thought I could write about those last dying days of vaudeville in England, which probably nobody really knew or cared much about, but there was so much to write about. It's good to pass on that knowledge. It's when you've reached, I've reached the age where I've seen in my life and been participating in the death of burlesque, the death of vaudeville, the exactly. death of movies, the death of television. Yes. <laughs> it goes on and on. I'm with you every step of the way, <laughs> Alan. Well, you know, when you were talking about your experience with the doctors in your throat, I was thinking of a theme that seems to run through the book, Homework, which is your experience is trusting people you don't know. Yes, well, tell tell me about what an how interesting that's been question. I don't think I've ever been asked that, Alan. That's re- well. You of all people would understand. You, I was so young, as I said, so green, and someone like, well, really the uh, the boyfriend was its own experience and a wonderful one, and I learned how to do some comedy and and how to begin to get some laughs every night and what it took. And it's not the laugh, it's the setup yes, and all yes. of that. That's great. Yeah, but, but really My Fair Lady was the great, great learning experience. And Moss could so easily, as our director, could have sent us home, sent me home because I wasn't a, really a good actress. I could sing, I could cut it vocally, but I couldn't act Eliza and I was a terrible cockney and God knows what. But Moss, because of his upbringing and his tremendous poverty and need to find himself, which I discovered in his book, I realized that he must have sensed something in me or was too kind. To, I mean, he he had empathy for where I was as a, as a tiny, as a young performer. And my God, I loved that guy. And he was so good to me. He didn't pull any punches, but he gave me that lifeline that I needed. Well, unfortunately, they're waving at me from the control room, though our time is up. I've I'm, taken all my daughter's no, time up. And, not uh, at all. No, and yours. No, I, I, I think one of the things I wanted to explore was the relationship, the mother and daughter relationship, and without even talking about it, 
you've given us a picture of it, which is really lovely. You collaborated in this conversation beautifully. Something we do to to end each show, I hope you're game for it, is seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. And they're they're not embarrassing, but they have something to do with relating and communicating. For instance... And you, either one of you can answer first. What's the hardest thing you have ever tried to explain to someone? Lord, uh, I'd need about a week to think about that. Oh, I, I have an answer. Go. What it's like to be Julie Andrews' daughter. <laughs> yes, go for it, darling. No, yeah. I'm, that's, no that's my the, answer. That's, that's, the, that's answer. the hardest thing yeah. I've ever tried yeah. to explain. So, Julie, you can keep thinking about that and come back next week on the show. I'd love to. Right? I'd love to. <laughs> Give me another one. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> uh, I have no compulsion about that. Or Emma will tell me that I've got my facts wrong. And mom, it's here in the diary. You have to follow the truth of that. You wrote it. Oh, okay. Um, but it's either one or the other of us is usually. Generally, I think your strategy is to apologize first and then correct them. Yes, yes. I'm so, sorry, but, you know. Interestingly, you've answered each other's question. <laughs> but the other thing is that uh, you are uh, uh, wonderfully firm about making me stick to truth. And I, and I, it's not that I embroider it. I, I do try to Well, we all truth. remember things differently. Slightly from differently. Every time you remember it, you change mm. the memory. But I, as I say, she's so great, and I'm so grateful. Can you imagine, Alan, to have, a, to have the, the, the young thing that she was, which was hip high and hanging onto my hand, and now we're two equal women I know it's wonderful. I have that with my daughters, yeah. and I love it. Yeah. Okay. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> this is funny. It's not, it's just, I remember it vividly. <clears throat> when I was in English pantomime, a fan came backstage and it was a very gushing, genuinely sweet lady. And I was in Red Riding Hood or something like that, playing Red Riding Hood. And she came backstage and she said, oh, it must be such fun to be in pantomime and on stage with people. Tell me, do you have picnics between the show together on stage? (laughs) On stage. (laughs) And the idea of what it was like to be in showbiz and have picnics on the the actual boards. And be the character in between shows. Yeah. How about you, Emily? I can't top that one. That's that's perfect. (laughs) Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, well, I am that. Um, uh, (laughs) So you just start talking. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of my bad habits is just interrupting. What about you, Emma? If she's a compulsive talker, how do you handle her? I interrupt, usually, (laughs) (laughs) which I've learned at her elbow. Yeah. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone at a dinner table who you've never met before? Usually, my interest is... Who are they? How did they get there? What make what? What do I want to know about their background? And uh, I just start asking questions, I guess. And I think you'd be the same. I'd be the same, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just start asking questions. I think that's. I think curiosity is such an undervalued trait. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I would say that it's one of the more important things in life yeah. is to be curious. And we are both insatiably curious. Great, great to hear that. Next, second to last question. What gives you confidence? 
Um, it took me so long to believe that I could be confident and that I had something worthy to offer. And I think over the years, the body of work speaks for itself, as you probably feel, Alan. I don't know. I'd love to ask you the same question. For me, it's having done it now for so long and getting the most wonderful responses from people, it does help enormously. Yeah. It's a, for me, it's the, the kind of the, the cliché is true for me. I've done this before and I can do it again. Yeah. Emma, what about you? What gives you confidence? You know, it's a really interesting question, and I think for me, it has something to do, and it probably has its roots in in experience, but it has to do with trusting process, trusting the process. I was thinking to, I was thinking back to working on this book together, and we were always against a terrible deadline, <laughs> and mom kept saying, we're never going to finish in time, we're never going to finish in time, and I just kept saying, we will, we will, we will, we will discover the ending, we will figure out how to finish this book, we, don't worry, we'll get there, you know, and... And did I don't you, know did, that I had the confidence. Did you believe a word exactly. of that? Exactly. <laughs> I don't know that I really had the confidence, but I trusted that the process would get us there. Yeah. And and I that's think a, that's an interesting approach. She's to so it. beautifully rooted uh, in her in herself in her life, uh, but in herself. I mean, her actual personality. I paid is, her to say that. Yeah. <laughs> she's so generous and so rooted, and it is such a gift. Okay. Here's the last question: What book? changed your life? Uh, do you want to take the first go at it and I'll take the second one, darling? For me, it's easy. Yeah. Okay, this is embarrassing, but it was a book from the 70s by Hugh Prather called Notes on How to Live in the World and Still Be Happy. <laughs> and it was a beautiful meditation on, essentially, on forgiveness and on love Hmm. And that book somehow came along at a right moment in my life where it just, my, my whole perspective shift from one of being slightly self-absorbed and, and more self-turned in to outward looking and, and to a, a thought of service and making a contribution. That really does sound like it. I'm going out to order it right yeah. away. <laughs> It's say, old. It was, you know, it's fair. It was written in the 70s. Say the name of it again. Notes on how to live in the world and still be happy. How about you, Julie? Mine was a children's book that was a huge influence on me. Uh, my father took me when I was like nine, I think, to one of the great bookstores uh, in our village and uh, was looking for a book to buy for me. And he found this and said, I think you'll like it. And it was a little tiny book called The Little Gray Men. It had beautiful um, lino cuts and woodcut illustrations. It was such a nature study that I was immediately taken into the wonder of detail and because it was easily absorbed by me at age nine or whatever, mm. um, it, it opened my head to the wonders of nature. And I must say, really influenced the first book I ever wrote, which was Mandy. That reminds me, my, I, I, I never think of this much, but the book that changed me was also a children's book about the age of eight, 
called Top Horse at Crescent Ranch. <laughs> and when I read it, I got so involved, I knew I wanted to write. Good. From that age, I wanted to be Good. a writer. And I, and I got very creative, and I wrote a story called not the top horse at Crescent Ranch. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> thank you so much, both of you. It's oh, been it's such been a such a terrific pleasure. Time. What a treat. Yeah. Really fun. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Julie's new memoir, Homework, is terrific. I think you'll enjoy reading it. It's available in bookstores and online. And as Emma said, she and Julie have collaborated on over 30 books together, many of them for children. You can find out more about Julie and Emma, including their book tour engagements, by visiting julieandrewscollection.com. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. This winter, if it gets really cold and you want to cozy up to a nice, warm movie, take a look at Marriage Story. It's coming to Netflix on December 6th. My conversation with Julie and Emma was just the first in what promises to be a standout season six of Clear and Vivid. I'll be talking with Ben Stiller, Conan O'Brien, scientists Dr. Lucy Jones and Carl Safina, And next week, my guest is the director, Noah Baumbach. His latest movie, Marriage Story, is now available on Netflix. And I love this movie. It's not just because I'm in it, either. It's a beautiful movie. Noah, I'm so glad you're on the show with me. This is really fun. It's the best. This is like what I would like to be doing all the time, is is talking to you um, and and having a real conversation. Oh, that's nice. Noah Baumbach, next time on Clear and Vivid. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.